g'day, g'day. Welcome back to episode 53 of the Sports Medicine Project. I'm here in the back of a juicy van with Kelly. How you doing? I'm good. That's good. We're uh, currently on holiday at the moment, so I apologise. Milford Sound. Yeah, apologise if the the audio quality is not great. Should be pretty good. I mean, we're in a forest in the back of this van. A little bit of rain on the back, but it is. It does feel a little bit like a, a podcast studio. Yeah, we're currently in <laughs> New Zealand, so I've got two weeks here. We just finished the Queenstown Marathon, and we're in Milford Sound at the moment, about to embark on a lovely couple of hikes and a couple of boat cruises but Mm -hmm. yeah we're going to talk about the marathon today a couple of different ideas I guess what we got from there what we'd learnt from it definite highs and lows lots of lows if you've seen our Strava but a couple (laughs) of things that made us think well more I don't know about you but I was thinking and I think this now because of the podcast every time I do something how it relates to the clinical life and the lesson I can learn from it. So I've got a couple of good ones, but yeah, you want to get cracking because we've got episode, no, sorry, part one with Andy Bright. In this episode, yeah. Yeah, which is, I can't wait for, and if you follow Andy on, on Instagram, he's got 40, I think like 50 something thousand followers, really, really intelligent guy. I It was a great episode. I was so shocked. I was quite disappointed because I was expecting us to disagree on a couple of things. And obviously, we there's a couple of things that we disagree on, but a lot, probably 98% of the things we did agree on. Yeah, I got a lot out of it too. Um, I, I thought it was a, an enlightening conversation and just a different perspective from the podiatrists that I have spoken to in some ways. Or yeah. just maybe maybe not a different perspective, but different um, treatment philosophies maybe is the word I want to use. Or um, I guess different ways to skin a cat but still get the same outcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah I've never heard you use that analogy in your life. Skin I, a cat. There's many ways yeah. to skin a cat. I yeah, yeah. I've just never so heard. So like brutal though. I don't really yeah. like it now that I've thought about it a I've little bit more. I've n- never heard you ever say that before, I don't think. But yeah, it, you're exactly right. I don't think he's treat treatment philosophies are that different to my own really like um, less is more minimum effective dose tissue capacity is is usually you would i would say you go to orthotics far more than andy would though yeah that's true that's very true and that was probably like something his, he, well, my my thoughts throughout it was that um you like you would often like following the tissue stress theory mm. prescribe an orthotic whereas andy would from what I can gather, and I'm making assumptions based off um, what I pulled from our conversation, he would go more a capacity building route before the orthotic. Yeah. Whereas you you would do the orthotic while capacity building. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, and that's probably where we we differ. And he a couple of things that he he did mention, like he has really long follow ups as well, like four weeks or even a couple of months, and that's probably something that we do disagree on I think that you can get and this is just my opinion um, whether it's evidence-based or not it does follow a logical order I think that I would be more likely to get someone better quicker with using an offloading tool while also building their capacity at the same time similar and it's an easy one to think of if you were to give someone for an Achilles tendinopathy a couple of heel lifts 
and also the strength and conditioning. One, it, it should make them feel a little bit better while they're dealing with it and hopefully unload it to the point where the capacity building can be the, the driver and possibly get them better quicker and back to their normal activity quicker. But hey, it could, could be wrong. And that's why we do this podcast, to learn mm. these kind of things. So Yeah, I did ask Andy about, you know, does time frames... <laughs> Our time frames mm. extended with that sort of method, but you'll have to tune in to yeah, hear you'll what have he to says. Listen. It was good to hear, and like lots of things, like he even agrees. You know, the arch doming and lifting up the toes is not useless, but it's such a low level of load that mm. it's probably not enough of a stimulus to create any adaptation. That's something I definitely believe in. And talking about the footwear and things as well, that was awesome. Hi. Mm. Yeah, you... I think a lot of a lot of um, what Andy was talking about, though, which I actually didn't. Um, realize until <laughs> towards the end was it was probably more so for general population rather than like runners or active people mm. is that right yeah 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 that's what a lot of I, I, I was just my brain was sort of elsewhere yeah. I thought we were talking a little bit more about like active people and like runners and things like that but it was probably more so targeted towards just general pop yeah I'm sure he sees a, a mix of both but yeah you're, you're right he he did say and we probably should have introduced Andy as the, and he's known as the barefoot podiatrist, and he's a big advocate for, mm. you know, flexible, low pitch shoes, very wide anatomical fitting shoes, and you know, natural is best, tissue capacity, and all that kind of kind of thing. I'm, I'm trying to think of a better way to explain it, but I'm sure he'll he'll be yeah, okay that's, with that. That's definitely something that I probably need to pay more attention to is people's. Um, foot width I think yeah and I completely agree there's people that and I always say this one line to patients so please feel free to steal it if you think it's any good I will say to patients that have a little bit more of a unique foot that shoe companies generally make shoes what they think is the normal foot in quotation marks and if you're anywhere outside of that it's very likely the foot may not fit as well and typically if you've got a little bit more mobility in your foot, whatever you put it into, it's able to kind of conform to the environment. So if you put it into a narrow shoe and you have a flexible foot, it will just conform to that because you've got that extra mobility. So Mm. knowing that, it's probably better in your case to look at a, a more anatomical fitting shoe, but I definitely don't agree that it needs to be for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Anything else you got from it? No? Yeah, probably, but I don't have it on the top of my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you want to get to your highs and, and lows. You you start with uh, with your highs and your yeah, lows. Yeah, so Queenstown, Queenstown Marathon recap. So that was two days ago. Still very sore. Mm. But big high was that that's been a bucket list marathon for me for ages. Since, since pretty much I like um, started... Born looking into yeah started running really um i've always thought it looked like such a beautiful run and one that i've wanted to do and so got to do it and finished it which was really exciting and my ultimate goal was just to be able to get to the start line without any injuries and then even more so to get to the finish line without any injuries and um so far i think that i have achieved that which is which is good haven't really tried any running yet apart from our little shuffle yesterday that we tried to do um which was challenging but yeah that was a a really big high for me um another another high is that I I certainly learned a lot um about how I would maybe prepare differently for a marathon I think as we have spoken about on the podcast so I have had a couple of niggles over the past couple of months so I did have to modify my training um to sort of 
cater for that. So I wasn't necessarily able to do the, the build that I was hoping to do. Um, Would you get a coach next time? Yeah, I, re- I think I'd really want to mm. do that. I'm, I, <laughs> I do prefer half marathons. I'm going to just go out there and say it. And maybe that's because that wasn't as enjoyable of a marathon as I maybe had um, envisioned it would have been. But I, I do think I want to, um, yeah, maybe look into getting a coach for, for next year and, and try and have a really good, strong mm. running season next year. Yep. Um, yeah, the weather was predicted to be like raining and horrible and it turned out to be a really great day. So that was also a, a big high for for me um because it allowed me to sort of take in the the marathon it was a it was a beautiful course and I think you know had I known what was what the course would have been like a little bit more and been able to prepare for it better I think I would have enjoyed it a whole lot more but um we'll we'll get to that when we talk about our lows what were your highs um yeah an interesting one I took and uh, about the marathon but the pain after and just my quads and hips being quite sore. It made me think of when we give rehab and, and things to patients when, you know, they may not have done, and we'll use running for an example, if they haven't run for a couple of months or four or five months or they haven't done any kind of exercise therapy like what we're giving them in the rehab and they do the rehab or they do the meaningful activity and they pull up sore the next day or they pull up sore for a couple of days, it just made me think that... Whether that pain that they feel that the days after, and always pre-framing and saying it's very likely you'll be sore after, it made me think whether the pain they actually feel is from the pathology that they've seen us for. And we use an Achilles as an example. Their Achilles is sore. Is it the fact of you know you? It's the pathology that's giving you the pain, or that it's you're doing something new that you haven't done for four or five months, or you're doing something in the rehab that we've given you that you've never done in your life, like some hopping or some jumping, or very likely a combination of both. Don't so you I think, ask them that though. I always ask them, you know, like, is it is that is that your symptoms? Is that the pain, or is it a different type of pain? Well, I don't you know. Can tell the difference. Yeah, I don't know if they're like they might not be qualified as of yet to be able to. I guess they might be able to tell the difference. But then, how do we know if it's if it, if they're feeling it in the same area? You know, and I abuse the example when I'm with patients and say, you know, if I wasn't, if sorry, if I didn't lift my hand above my shoulder for two weeks and then I decided to do it, it's probably going to feel a bit sore and creaky and stiff, but it's very likely I don't have any pathology there. It's just something new that I haven't done in a while. So mm-hmm. I whether it just made me think um, how much of the pain is from the pathology and how much is them from doing something new. And obviously there's some pathological pain that is the driver there, but mm-hmm. also just saying that to them, because it's very likely they'll be sore and stiff after doing something they haven't done in a while. And I think pre-framing it to say, you, you probably are going to be sore. That's completely normal because we're not going to be there, obviously the days after to reassure them that it's normal. And for them, if they do something they haven't done in a while and then it's painful and we haven't said anything, they're going to be like, oh, I've gone backwards, I can't do it, I need to stop everything, I'm in pain, that kind of thing. Yeah. I guess if we talk about an Achilles tendon, for an example, though, mm. <clears throat> your Achilles tendon isn't often not going to be like sore like a muscle soreness, DOMS, after doing calf raises. Your calf muscle is, if it's that kind of soreness. It won't be. Your, your tendon's not going to get DOMS. But could it be sore from just not, if you haven't used it that way in three to four months? Like if you haven't run for three to four months and then you go and run, would, is it possible your Achilles might be sore? I guess so, but I, I don't know if that's a DOMS. I think DOMS is muscle. 
Oh, I'm not, no, I'm not saying it's DOMS. I just generalized soreness or just generalized, uh, what's the word for sensation? A generalized... Sensitivity? Yeah, just a generalized sensitivity. Mm. Like, if I, if, like if, I, if I don't run for the next five months and then I go out and run, I would, and again, I'm not going to say it's 100%, but I would think it's possible that the Achilles tendon may be sore or the calf may be sore. And you, you're right, it's probably more likely to be the calf. But I think it's a lot easier to maybe pre-frame that for them just in case it is. Mm. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Mm-hmm. I don't think it could be DOMS, but it could be a sensitivity. You don't think it's possible? No, I do. I, I think I do it, though. So you just need to catch up. Ah, oh, right. Well, I'm <laughs> a new graduate here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I do more rehab, though. So I think that's something I'm conscious of, is when I'm taking someone through hard things, I'm, I'm often saying to them, you yeah, might yeah. be a bit sore after this, but... Yeah, you, you'll understand. Yeah, I day. just tape people and stuff. Hey, yeah. I do the rehab. <laughs> yeah. You are right. You do do. You give a lot more rehab and have given more rehab. But I, I that that marathon made me think of that and pre-framing. I guess it's like, um, what's the not under under promise over deliver. Just saying, yeah, you might be sore. That way, you, you kind of cover yourself when it is, mm-hmm. and then that way, if it's not, they come back and you're like a genius, which is cool. But yeah, but it's not a bad thing to be sore. No, but they are very likely to think that it is. Mm-hmm. They're likely to think that pain is bad. Okay. You don't think? Patient, all your patients love being in pain? Well, you know, people that are, are pretty active, have. this is not the first time that they've got soreness after doing something hard. Yeah, but you, you, have to, you would have to admit that it's very likely that if they're in pain, most people that practitioners are going to be seeing are going to think that's a negative. Mm. You don't think? No, I disagree. Really? Yeah. Do you uh, not have patients that finish a workout or they come in they're like, oh, it's a bit sore, but it was good. I felt like I did something. Yeah, but not all of them and not no. nowhere near the majority. I would think that the majority, most of the patients that I see, and you must see a different population. You might see all Olympic athletes, but the people <laughs> that I see typically come to see me because the pain is not good. They don't come in and say, oh, it, it's... Maybe it's because I've pre-framed it better than you have. I don't, I don't know. I think you were wrong. I, I do. <laughs> but anyway, we'll put up a poll on the Instagram and say, we'll say something as simple as, do your patients like to be or in pain? maybe, maybe I calculate the appropriate dose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you give them too much. Maybe. All right. Well, we'll leave it as, all your patients love being in pain. And my I usually try to get people out of pain. We'll leave it as that. <laughs> no, I did. I get what you're saying. But anyway, we'll move on. Yeah. Uh, my, was I saying my highs? Yeah. The shoes are great. Alpha Fly 2s are really, really good. Uh, blister prevention. I got a blister after I just said the shoes were great, on my right foot. And I was talking to Nathan Pope about this, how the Alpha Flies fit really well. And then I got a blister on the, just at the base of my first metatarsal. And I put a little hydrocolloid pad on it. I put a little ergo pad in my shoe and I was fine. So that was really, really good. So that gave me a bit of confidence because I tend to see a lot of people with blisters, a lot of trail runners with blisters in the clinic. So I was excited for that, that it worked. And I'm very excited to continue running. I've downloaded a couple of books on the to read on the trip. Endure, 
the science of running and I'm going to try and do my own programming and then probably get a coach for the Gold Coast Marathon, I think. And then also talking with other runners about testing. So I was talking to a couple of people about like lactate testing and all the testing that they do at the university and it was so cool and so insightful. It was just so interesting to hear about that kind of stuff where they work out your zones and your LT1 and LT2 and all that kind of stuff Like and then your paces based off that. Like And yeah, they do it a couple of times a year, but that was awesome. Yeah. What about your, your lows? Oh, the lows. If any. If any, yeah, no. It was hard. I you know you know those days where you go for a run? Like let's just say you go for a six kilometer run and there's some days that you're like, I just feel great and then there's other days where you're just like dragging your feet. Mm-hmm. I was I was not having a good running day. I just at no point throughout the entire run did it feel comfortable or mm-hmm. good or easy or anything. And I just remember running along this part and it felt like I'd been running for hours and I looked down at my watch and it's been 17 kilometres and I still had so far to go. And I was like, oh shit, this is going to suck. So it was hard. Um, And that's that's not the course's fault. That's entirely oh, you're my fault. excuses out. No, no, no. I, so I, <clears throat> I significantly underestimated the, the difficulty of Queenstown Marathon. Um, when I, you know, saw that it was undulating hills, I, I did expect sort of rolling slight inclines and slight declines, but mm. it was steep up, steep down. <clears throat> um, the <clears throat> steep ups took it out of me and then the steep downs you know they were they were on gravel roads where I didn't feel like you could run fast or I hadn't prepared myself enough to be able to to run fast down them um I felt like I was either gonna like roll on an uh roll my ankle on a rock or slip or something Mm. like that so it was a bit of a shuffle down the hills um and yeah it hurt. <laughs> um, so yeah, pretty much hit the wall at 17 kilometers and then just like shuffled my way to the end. Um, was nowhere near the, the time that I was hoping for. However, I, I very quickly sort of um, rearranged my goals throughout the marathon and um, sort of was like, all right, maybe under four hours. We'll see how we go. Otherwise, just finish. And I did just slip in under four hours. So I was happy. I was happy to, to get there. And, yes, yeah, certainly um, learnt a lot about how I would prepare better next time. Definitely would have gotten out onto, like, Glenrock Trails and ran on that as much as I could have in, in retrospect. Like, I sort of thought Glenrock might have been a bit, like, hardcore for for a, a marathon of undulating hills but not at all I reckon that mm. would have been the perfect training to do <coughs> a few laps yeah. around Glenrock um, for that particular marathon yeah what are your lows my lows similar similar to yours I think if I mean it was windy my shoes if those things were right I probably would have just got under because I only just missed my time by 39 minutes <laughs> No, I'm not making any excuse at all other than my training and my ability to actually do the, the three hours. I wasn't even even close. I will, and I don't want to be the guy that says these excuses, but I am going to say, and I was, even if it was a flat, I'm going to say firstly and pre-frame it, if it was a flat 
slight decline, 42k with a, with a tailwind, I still wouldn't have got the three hours. I felt, I was the opposite. I felt really, really good. I was like all week, the taper felt really good. I'd, all my nutrition was good. I'd eaten like, I feel like I'd eaten enough, but not too much to feel full. And I didn't feel lethargic or anything like that. But the first 5k were, were great. I was on target 415. And we kind of come, yeah, we come off the, you run along the road and then you come on into these trails and we'd driven past the trails when we went bungee jumping. I was like, oh sweet. That just looks like you're running along the river, nice and flat. And then when you got onto it, it was these little, like five meters of incline, five meters down, up and then down. And they were up. steep. Yeah, like they, they were proper they steep. Were steep hills. Like I would go from 415 to like. 520 and then down to 415 to 520 and then I would go down because I would sprint down with because the shoes were able to really help me do that I would get to like a 350 pace going down and then I would have to come back up and then flat and my problem was that I I tried to sprint the downhills and my quads just couldn't handle it by <laughs> kind of 12 13k they were feeling oh, quite fatigued so that really yeah did me in and like Kelly was saying at the 15k there was this steep like 40 meter hill and I thought to myself there is no way that I'm going to get even close to three hours so I readjusted to 430 pace I thought once I get onto the second half should be sweet then I adjusted to 445 and then once I got to like 457 pace I was like you know what I'm going to adjust to just finishing (laughs) and I was I was really struggling isn't it funny because the the whole time leading into the marathon you were like you just need to have one goal because as soon as you give yourself (laughs) a moment of weakness and then there's there you go giving yourself (laughs) giving yourself your um your um that moose guy was right he always says respect the marathon and I knew and I I was like I just probably have to go through it and have a shitty one to to get it wrong and to experience it but I did not think Think it would be like I didn't think it would be that bad. Yeah. I just I was doing the. You know, as I was saying, sorry, I interrupted you. you no, no, you go, you go. Yeah, I, I don't. Did... No, <laughs> no, you actually go. I did a thirty-two kilometer run a few weeks ago mm. and felt great. The whole run just felt so comfortable. No, no issues. Mm. I just can't believe how different that was. But I think it was the hills. I think it was the hills that really cooked me. Yeah, it, it had to be. It had to be. I would never. Around the like the 17, 18 kilometer mark, my I started to feel my legs not even cramp, but I could feel them on the verge, and they did eventually cramp around the 30k mark. But there's no, I can't imagine that could have been from anything else other than the hills and just like that eccentric control running down the hill. Mm. But yeah, if you listen to this and I had discussed the three hour with you, I knew and I know that you would have been in your mind going, "This fucking idiot thinking he can run three hours." I just want to say that you should have just knocked some sense into me and there's a couple of people I can think of that tried to yeah I um, do remember yeah, no, I was just thinking that too I was thinking all of like the the proper runners that listen to this podcast are probably like these these um <laughs> yeah. these um little no, the only person that was kind of close like Joe um Joe Ryan I remember messaging him like ages ages ago and he's like he didn't say no but he, I remember him <laughs> the message he was like Oh, I know a lot of really good runners that haven't real like can run like a one twenty three half and haven't been able to get under the sub three. And then I was like, Yeah, you're probably right. And then like a week later I was like, No, no, I'm actually gonna go for it. So I should have just listened and set a more realistic goal. But it's good and I'm happy that we're not hating running. You know, like yeah. there could have been a bad experience where you don't enjoy it. I'm really keen to, to get stuck into running. Yeah, yeah, properly. I'm keen to have a few, like a month or six weeks of just unstructured mm. 
trails and stuff while we're on the rest of this holiday and yeah. then yeah maybe like halfway through january start to to get back into it for next mm. year i think yeah that's my plan other one morton i was had pure performance sorry yeah pure nutrition gels and then at the 32k mark i had a morton and then instantly felt sick so i'm off Morton for now. Actually, that moment. was something that I was happy about. I didn't get any. Yeah, you did well. I, all the all my nutrition digested very well. I was happy yeah. about that. And don't take that as the nutrition did anything to my time. It wouldn't have mattered if I had the most perfect gel anyway. Nothing would have changed. And the last low, I'll leave you guys with is, and we're going to put this on our Instagram. Is there was a, a recent study that came out with Stuart Warden talking about sport specialization and bone stress injuries and. Basically, if you're, and it seems to be happening more in female athletes, and they do these studies in collegiate, um, is it NCAA or XC runners over in the States, where if they specialize early in running, they are much more likely to have bone stress injuries when they're older. So, any parents listening to this, I would, I don't know if there is, there, there might be. I think that early sports specialization is pretty clear now. I know I've had a fair mm. fair number of studies, but I would say it's pretty clear now that early sports specialization is a significant risk factor for further injury. I was thinking about this the other day. I wonder like to what level that is because often, you know, during high school and things like that in PE and sport, you have to play like a bit of touch footy but or not soccer often, like it's not consistent. So yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like is that enough of a variety if someone's mm. predominantly doing running yeah. to get that multi-directional stress or do you think they have to like actually involve themselves in a team sport i think it's got to be and the average would be you know maybe one or two training sessions a week and then playing on the weekend because you think when you're in pe when you're in high school and primary school like how involved are you really i mean i went to an all-boys school and we were heavily involved but i don't know if that was the the norm i would often forget my shorts yeah, or you just kind of kick the footy or and you might do it for 20, 25 minutes or the, the people that really love sport play the majority and, and take like, over and, and hold remember, the ball and stuff. I remember stuff. not wanting to get sweaty. Yeah, that, exactly, things like that. <laughs> so, so I just tried not to... And you yeah. might do that, what, maybe once or twice a week. So you might do 20, 30 minutes and then you might change in two weeks and play, mm. do swimming or volleyball. Oh, I think that was fun when we did like the pool. Yeah, I remember I get really, I loved cross country. That was the only time I ever like wanted to play <laughs> or gymnastics. That was fun. Yeah, that would have been good. But yeah, interesting. So, I mean, it keeps coming up, but I I yeah, wonder, I yeah, if they're going to be able to get the dosage right and figure out how much, which is going to be really hard to do that um, retro, sorry, prospectively and follow people over time to see if they've trained, they might do two hours a week of a mm-hmm. multi-directional sport. Does that reduce the Do you remember if injury? it said that at all in that study? No. No, I haven't actually read the study. I just saw it was... I'm, I'm happy to say that I didn't read the study. I saw it was Stuart Warden. Abstract boy over here. He was an absolute weapon in the bone <laughs> injury. And then I quickly read the conclusion because we don't have any, any service. But I will read the, the study properly. Awesome. Well, enjoy this episode with yeah. Andy Bryant, guys. It's an absolute ripper. Part one this week, part two next week. As always, have a lovely week and we'll, we'll talk soon. Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast, The Sports Medicine Project. Now, I say this every episode with every single guest, but I'm an extra bit excited today because we have Andy Bright on the podcast. Mate, how are you going? Thank you so much for coming on. 
I'm well. Thanks for having me. Beautiful. What up? So whereabouts are you at the moment? You're down south, aren't you? I, I'm in Melbourne, and I'm I I'm really busy, and I'm going. I'm coming up your way, like a, a pass where you guys are next week. So I had people that cancel, and I usually try and fit them in, but I'm decided to work a Saturday instead, and it's a bit quieter here to do a podcast as well. Yeah, the, the clinic room. It's a bit, a bit like a, a studio room, isn't it? it the is. clinic room. Yeah. It'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So, mate. In Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, for the um for the listeners, can you give us a bit of a, a backstory as to what you do, who you are, and I guess the the journey that you've you've been on and still on? Yeah. So um I, I think I got into podiatry because I was a runner when I was at uni and like an elite level runner, but um plagued by injuries. But podiatrists weren't treating me then. I only started getting treated by podiatrists once I started podiatry school. Mm. And you know, you all make each other orthotics and then staying them for <laughs> like 20 years, um, which is what I did. And then, um, and then got into private practice pretty quickly. Although I, at the time when I was at uni, didn't think I'd enjoy working and, and had a passion for teaching. And so I did an honours year, which was a teaching year as well. And I really enjoyed that. But then I started working and it was just so easy to work. And, you know, um, it's a lot easier than uni life, I think, to be working in some respects in terms of finances and things. So, um, so then I got into private practice um, in a partnership for, I think, 18 years. But the last three years, I started changing the way I was practicing, and, and a few other things were coming up, and probably harder than a marriage to be in a um, partnership. So um, I ended up bailing on that, and we had multiple practices. I got one little one where I am now, and um, that suited me fine. And yeah, so the last three or four years, I've been exploring um, a different way of uh, treating my clients. It's just still evolving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So, and I mean, talking about over the over the years, so obviously when you went to podiatry school, we were very much treating, I guess, the kinematic model of, you know, foot rolls in, yeah. plastic underneath, make it neutral, subtail going neutral, all that kind of thing. So you trained and, I guess, grew up with podiatry when that was, I guess, what we thought about everything? Yeah, so um, although I had Craig Payne as my honours year oh, um, yeah. supervisor, supervisor, and he was the uh, – he was – the, the lecturer that I most, you know, if you have gotten an affinity for a lecturer because you like the way of, and he was really pro um, making us think and, yeah. and you know, using all these different, and just as long as you could justify why you were thinking away using some model of care. And the tissue stress model was always my go-to. And mm-hmm. even when I was in um, the other private practice, we had our own little lab and I, I was probably known as an under-prescriber of an orthotic I, I think because I was generally lazy and I had to make it myself. Um, <laughs> but also it was still always using that tissue stress model. Okay, this is loaded, let's unload it. Um, and so I, I think I still have that at the core of the way I work. Yeah. Um, that and, and as the and I think that will um, will answer one of the questions as well further down the track. Um, but that's uh, was always my sort of modus operandi, and we were explained that then the tissue stress model. But there was still a whole lot of um, this way of the foot moving is wrong, and we need to move it to this way. Mm-hmm. And if ever if anyone you saw you were trying to get to be this perfect foot, and I I now in my um, when I'm speaking to someone when I'm watching them walk, I'm explaining to them I'm not seeing if they're this far away from the way they should be walking or I'm just getting a feel for how they move and how that might be loading tissues and then how does that yeah. relate to yeah. how does that relate to what's actually going on you know I'm not saying it's bad or wrong I'm just mm. trying to see what they're doing and then how that relates to um, what they're coming to me for yeah Andy you said that um, you experienced a few running related injuries before you got into podiatry do you think yeah. that how that was managed and how you got the, through those injuries has influenced you know some of your treatment philosophies now and and when you were becoming a podiatrist 
Yeah, for sure. And like uh, they were mostly medial tibial stress issues and stress fractures. And it was like I was an elite junior, like um, running nationals, that type of thing at, at middle distance. And I had a coach that was really the like Arthur Lydia, the long, slow distance, like build up your base. Mm. And to become a senior athlete, you just have to do more Ks. And really um, that probably didn't suit me. I kept getting injured. And then I got um, – Steve Ovet's coach, and and that, I don't know if you know those guys, Steve Ovet and Seb Coe, and the Seb Coe was really like um, about technique and gym work and and speed, and Steve Ovet was this like grinder, you know, mm. and they would meet together in the 800 and 1500 metres and have these massive. Um, so I got Steve Ovet's the wrong coach, the wrong side of the stick, because that was another guy that just ran me into the ground and I just kept getting injured. And yeah. so there's nothing wrong with the way my foot moves, but um, I think when you add all that load to the way I was running probably, and I probably became a plotter rather than a really, like my technique probably changed as well. And so putting an orthotic in there wasn't going to help. I never did any mobility work, any strength work. We were worried about, 20 years ago, I was worried about strength work. I didn't want to get bulky as a middle distance runner. Um, <laughs> yeah. But doing 100 Ks a week, it's almost impossible to get bulky. Um, <laughs> and so, like, if I look back, I'm like, wow, if only I, like, I'm, I'm sure we all do that. If only I knew then what I know now, then who, who knows what I could have done in my running career. Like I quit running for 20 years and I guess, and then I became an elite cyclist and through a series of falling off my bike and head injuries, I found yoga and my own feet started to change massively. Like for the first time I stopped needing to wear my orthotics. I thought I needed to. Mm. And um, my feet were getting more mobile. My whole body was getting mobile. I started going to a gym and training and seeing other people train barefoot. I'm like, there's got to be something to this. And I started running, but getting old symptoms back. So then I was looking to running technique, running shoes, like just using my body. And um, Nick from the Foot Collective um, probably taught me this, using my body as as the first um, experiment, just seeing, okay, what works for me? And then how do I apply this to other people? Not exactly what I'm doing, but, you know, okay, how am I loading this? How can we change this load, that type of thing? Yeah. So definitely um, my own experience is, is continuing to shape what's going on, even the people around me, like my wife has a sore foot now. Um, and so I'm like, okay, so why is this happening and how would I have treated this before? And when, you know, like he's constantly um, in the head about this stuff. Yeah. yeah. More than ever before, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, well, uh, we'll get cracking with with this yeah. first question. I guess what, did I, what I would have liked is, you know, we've got the overarching principles to, to how you treat. And I think we all yeah. inherently have our own principles, whether or not we reflect on them very regularly, but people can see the the barefoot content as polarizing, you know, where people say pain is caused by wrong fitting shoes and all that kind of thing, and then associate that with you as a person. And we know there's more nuance to it than that. So for the listeners, what would you say your principles are for your way of, of practicing? Now, forgive me, when I say barefoot, I just think that people will know that group. I'm sure there's yeah. a better name for it, but yeah. Yeah. And so um, you might say pro minimalist shoes or, yeah. um, and, and I guess there's not many podiatrists this way aligned. And that's why maybe what I'm saying is a bit more like out there because most people align podiatrists with um, big shoes and orthotics and things like that. But there are other podiatrists doing what I do, but maybe less vocally. Mm. Um, and so uh, I think it comes back to what I said before, this um, idea of tissue stress model. Mm. Um, and it's not, uh, and that probably on social media, it's, far more black and white than it is in reality. Like mm -hmm. when someone's coming into me, I'm assessing where they're at at that moment in time, where they're coming from and where they're going to and 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 putting something in place that is going to suit, suit them there and then. It's not like everyone is just going into a minimalist shoe. And so um, 
I would say my overarching principle of practice is to meet people where they're at, listen to them. They've mostly got the answers for you. And I think I have a very nuanced audience now in mm. that people that come to me want to be going into a more natural way. They've, they've had experiences with orthotics or don't want to go down that path or with other modes of treatment. And they've either heard about me or researched about um, the way that I work. And so, and they're often highly complex cases now, like they've, they've shopped around, they've done a whole lot of stuff. And so just to actually meet someone where they're at mm. and acknowledge that and then move, move on, it's, it's, move on to the next step. It's um, hardly the barefoot principle to some extent. Yeah. Because, um, but, but then I'm also looking at them as a human and as, as how a human should move. And often so much has happened to them, not only the feet, but the whole body because of westernized society in terms of footwear, um, office jobs, so much stuff going on that um, when we peel this stuff back, and go back to being a more natural human and giving your body the chance to heal, the opportunity to heal, whether that be um, with more strength or rest or other, you know, good diet, sleep, all these different factors. When we start peeling all that back and and having someone understand um, or seem to understand or acknowledge that they have pain and injury, I think this is my overarching principle. And maybe two years ago I would have answered it differently. I would yeah. be like, no, everyone needs to be in a barefoot shoe. I, I just think it's more about... Um, letting their bodies do the job and and finding where they're at at that moment. I don't know if that even answers the question. No, that, yeah, no, that's that's good. That's really yeah. good. Mm. Andy, yeah. what what are the more common pathologies that you do see through that you know complex caseload that you just mentioned? Yeah, well, a perfect example yesterday um, was a lady with a bunion that had travelled from like probably sixty kilometres away to see me because the chiropractor that she traveled 70 kilometers to see told her to come and see me <laughs> um, because she'd already got orthotics for bunions. Yeah. Um, she'd got, she's starting to get claw toes and she's got um, met domes in her runners to help her claw toes. So this is all like putting a patch over things. And the orthotic was totally inappropriate, won't even fit in her shoes. And so it had been, and it had been revised four times, but still didn't really fit in her shoes and it wasn't comfortable. And so um, for, for, so I see a lot of people with bunions in this situation where they've done all this stuff and they've still got a bunion and they're still having issues with it. And um, so I said to them, as any, said to her, has anyone talked to you about your footwear? And the footwear has not even come up on the radar. Like it's not even a thing. And so I pulled out the insole of her shoe, of her runner, her most comfortable shoe, and put her foot on it and her toes are crunched like this in her runner. Mm. And so like that's a pretty powerful image for her to see. Like this is the shape your foot's meant to be and this is the shape it is now when you're in this shoe. Um, and so like for, for her, it's just about getting her head around wearing a different shoe um, and um, some very basic exercises. And maybe in six months' time when she's come to that point, she'll come back to see me. Mm. But a lot of the pathology, pathology I see is heaps of bunions, um, a lot of chronic heel pain because mm. a lot of stuff hasn't worked, um, and then some really like have an hour and a quarter for initial consultation and some people just need to speak to me for half an hour about their, their history of their feet because yeah. there's yeah. so much stuff going on. And in those cases, I'm just going, okay, what's hurting you today? What's hurting you this week? What's hurting you this month? And let's work on that and then um, see how it all falls into the bigger picture, you know, like um, just decreasing goals and things. Yeah, like talking about bunions and it's such a controversial topic is you know, <laughs> there's genetics, there's shoes, there's this, there's that. And, you know, we... We try to explain it as a whole spectrum of treatment. There's lots of things that you can try. Yeah. Um, like, what's your take on them and 
kind of their etiology and also you know, how do you explain them to patients as well, like yeah. the analogies and things that you use? Um, so I definitely would say that um, there's there are I, I start out by saying there are genetic factors that have predisposed you to having this happening to happening to your foot, mm. and then there are environmental factors as well, and it's when those two coincide that we end up with a bunion, yeah. and and that's um, in a perfect world. Like some people don't have the environmental factors and might still get a bunion. Some people don't have the genetic factors and still get a bunion. Mm. Um, but I think the genetic factors are, um, and this is how I explain it, are triggered by the environmental factors. And it can't, um, if you go to any local kindergarten, there are 99% of children, possibly 100% of children, um, in shoes that aren't widest at the tips. And yeah. the message when they were those kids were first wa walking was to have a shoe that's widest at the tips, to have a shoe that's um, thin, flat and flexible. But when they go to kindergarten, when they're two, three, or probably three, four, five, they're in their little shoes that um, are squishing their toes. And so if they have a predisposition to having a bunion, that's a very early start on a very flexible foot to ch start changing that. Um, and so, uh, and then, I mean, it's, it's a given amongst all the podiatry community that a really pointy shoe and a high heel increases the chance of a bunion. That's a given. So it's not that, I don't think it's that big a step to say, let's go back a step and say that any shoe that is squashing your big toe sideways may be a precursor to a bunion as well. Mm -hmm. It may just not be as, as big a precursor to a bunion. But if you're going to say that a, a really pointy shoe is going to help trigger a bunion, um, then any shoe that is pushing that big toe sideways is going to have an effect on your on that, on that the mechanics around there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But obviously there's stuff going on up the chain. There's yeah. so many different factors. And I'm assessing someone for all of that and working out what individually is the issue. Mm. I like but, I just quickly say, if we don't change the shoe, we are just like um, moving deck chairs on the Titanic. Because yeah. if you don't change the shoe, you're, you, you can put the toe spaces in, you can do all the foot strength, you can do all the mobility, you can do all the core strength, hip strength, all this type of stuff. If you keep putting your foot in that environment, eight hours a day it's like you know it's you're on a hiding to nothing it's very hard work yeah i, I like yeah. things that you've said just it's not and i think that the social media stuff can be polarizing with people because they see it and i think they take it as the community and your community saying shoes cause bunion full stop and then obviously yeah. like you said social media is black and white but you, your guy you're not, not saying that at all you're saying it it's a it's an increase, maybe a risk factor. We don't know how much. It could be a lot, could be less, but it's more meaning the, the person individually and seeing where they're at. The shoe may play a big role or it may not play a huge role, but it probably is in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. How, um, and <laughs> I feel like I'm going controversial topic after controversial Good. topic. That's a, I'm here how, um, how do you use orthotics in your clinical practice and what general advice do you give with them? So yeah. I... I I mean, I've got a lot of history using orthotics because mm. I used to make them myself, which is gives you a, a real insight into how they work, I think. Um, but I always had, I, I never had a, a great feeling about them. Like I was always like, oh, I don't want um, this to be something I just rely upon, you know. But then I had clients in them for 15 or 20 years and the hardest part of me changing the way I practice is when that client comes back for a recover or because they think they need new ones or whatever um, and me explaining that I have changed the way I practice and they may not need them in the long term. But um, mostly it's a very positive outlook because people inherently trust their provider. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm not abusing that trust. I'm just saying there's another way. And some people are like, you know what? I love my photos. I'm going to stick with them and that's fine. But mm. I tend to not see those people so much anymore. Like I'm not even set up to do much orthotic work. Mm. I've got a podiatry practice just up the road here um, 
that like maybe five kilometers up the road and the uh, husband and wife were at, at uni the year below me and I used their lab. I just go and use their lab whenever I need to do orthotic work. Yeah. They just very kindly let me and I might send them, like I have some people ring up and say they need orthotics and I explain on the phone my, my that I that I may not put them down that pathway. I'll just, if they're like, no, I need them, I'll just send them to that practice down there. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's not, I don't want to be just um, giving someone an orthotic unless they really need it. Yeah, um, and oh, so then, when, so then, so th- because when someone says I really need an orthotic, they don't really, they don't know that, and so yeah. um, that's my assessment might say you don't really need it, and so, um, but who am I to say that to them? If they really want it, then and a practitioner is willing to give it to them, I'm just not that practitioner. My standards are that I won't do it unless I really um, think that it's it must be done, you know, and and so. Uh, then if I do use orthotics, I might use form orthotics first and foremost. They're so highly adjustable that I can um, I can make a cus- as good a customised device out of a form orthotic as any scan. Like answer me this, and, and one of your posts a, a long time ago um, triggered my way of um, thinking this. We take a scan of a foot that's non-weight-bearing um, with measurements that don't even have any clinical relevance really, mm. um, and make a prescription on something using a theory that's hard for us to understand, let alone explain it to someone who's going to wear the thing mm. um, and is outdated and has poor poor um, research-based relevance as well. Yeah. Yet we do this systemically. We do this, like this is a custom-made device, you know, and we, we even now just take a scan. It's like a totally non-weight-bearing scan. And like I used to just use plaster casts and then I'd be putting plaster on that plaster cast and always thought I'm just moving this foot away from being the this orthotic away from being customized. So I reckon off the shelf devices, if you know how to adjust them, you know, like I've had two cases recently. I have a physio that I work really close with. She sent me the first one. He'd had a perineal perineus longus um, snapped it and hadn't had it repaired. Wasn't going to get it repaired. So really struggling to get the the big toe joint down to the ground. And for those listening that um, don't understand that, the, the muscle on the outside of the leg wrapping around the base of the outside of the foot is really um, important at um, grounding the big toe when we're pushing off. And so this guy is a runner, he's a physio himself, and he's just towing off laterally and really like struggling. So I used a form thotic, which I ground down to just, just as a means to get a four foot um, lateral wedge in yeah. to get some weight over to his first. And it's making a huge difference. I've done that twice in the last couple of months um, for another guy that had had the surgery after snapping peroneus longus, where he's now got it attached to peroneus brevis. So he's still not getting that first ray um, stabilization from peroneus longus. So we've pushed him down into, um, you know, onto his first with a lateral forefoot wedge. So that's the type of thing I do now. Or like that chronic heel pain that I've tried everything for six weeks, they've and been really good with their, um, with their, um, you know, programs that I set out for them and change shoes, doing all these different things. And and we might put a, a very simple insole in just oh, yeah. almost proprioceptively. Or I had a, um, a tip post rupture recently. Um, like I saw her three months down, another podiatrist had not explained things that well to her. And she'd had a scan for an orthotic, but didn't think she'd signed up for it. Yeah. And then I, when I when I saw this foot, I'm like, this looks like accessory navicular. This looks like a tip post rupture. You've got to get a scan because I can rehab this to the cows come home with you. But if those things are going on, it's going to make it really hard. Scan, accessory navicular and nine millimeter snap in the tip post. Yeah. And so um 
And then when I'm talking to her about this scan on the phone, she's like, the other podiatrist rang up and my orthotic's ready. I didn't even know I was getting one. I'm like, well, yeah. now is the time to use that orthotic. Like I want you in that orthotic until you see the surgeon and that's a, a great um, stopgap to get you through to that point when, and, and then we'll reassess. So this is exactly how I use and it. On that, per, like that, those patients, would, would you say like that they will probably benefit longer term? And it's such a narrow indication, but would you say that they would probably, and again, not to say they have to, yeah. or when we say longer term, it might be for a couple of years. Like, do you think that those are the kind of people that probably do benefit from it longer term in combination with strength and rehab and proper fusion? Yeah. So like, like as in those, um those, that perineal songs and tip posts. Yeah. So those types of things, I would say, um, uh, they would. Ne- they don't generally ask. They know where I'm coming from, and yeah. and would see it as a short term thing. But I will say, but maybe you'll always use it when you go for your walk every day. But you, yeah. but they, these people tend to love being barefoot or love trying to do less. They're having less coming at them, you know. So, um, they've generally got a goal of not being in it all the time. But I would um, definitely educate them that this might be something you have for certain activities, you know, like it just all about managing that load. Like I would hate to tell people they can't walk barefoot on the beach because most of my clients want to do that. Yeah. All right. Can you just say something that I don't agree with? Oh, no, sorry. I'm trying to make something a bit polarising. Well, what I'm, can I just say um, something wrong? Like, we, we chat a lot or I write a lot and you t- um, send me. Um, <laughs> Especially if you're not the only person that says that. I apologise. That's all right. Yeah. Um, so, and what I, like a, I think when I started out doing this way, podiatrists, I just saw it as very black and white. But there's a few of you now that I say, hey, we're doing this stuff, but we're just doing it with the nuance of um, what you learned 20 years ago as well. And so it's really comforting or um, I'm excited about the future of podiatry because um, there's people with an open mind, whereas um, I think the old school podiatrists don't even know that we're having this discussion. Like it's not even in their heads um, that it could be a possibility not to do what they've been doing for the last 20 years. And you can see PD till the cows come home. Um, you're not going to hear this stuff yet, but I think the more we talk about it, the more yeah. it's going to get out. And then they'll either be forced to change or they'll slowly leave the profession. And, you know, in 20 years' time, we might see some um, different styles of professions. Yeah, of the profession, yeah. yeah. Uh, another question, Andy, on on the like orthotic sort of conversation again. So, for, like, for example, someone comes in with, like, a perineal tendinopathy or something like that and you decide, you know, maybe not to, to give them an orthotic, is, do you find that rehab timeframes are a little bit longer when you're not offloading it or, or following, you know, a, a, maybe a tissue stress theory or, or how are you sort of a, approaching that? I reckon um, podiatrists are often not, um, in my experience, the first port of call for foot stuff. They might, like, they're more likely to go see a physio for an ankle sprain or um, their GP. And so when they finally get to me one or two months or three months or even more down the track, they're at the chronic stage, you know. And so offloading is not really, I don't think it's really that helpful at that stage. We want to get it more stable, more loaded. And perineal tendinopathies are really interesting. They do really, I'm finding, and this is still kind of fresh for me, it's not like I've got perineal tendinopathy every week, but I might see like two a month or something like that. And so, but what I'm finding is that more stable that foot is, like we see the perineals working overtime to stabilise a foot. If you think about what a BOSU ball does to a foot stability, it's like your foot is working so overtime, you see the ankle working overtime. And so when we look at a shoe that's full of cushioning, um, you see the foot working overtime. And so 
I'll even give um, some, I'll give them the choice of going into a, like a, a cushioned flat shoe that's allowing their big toe to be um, able to be used so you can plant it and use it or go into a, a fully minimal shoe. Like this is one of the cases where going straight to a fully minimal shoe in a lot of cases is working amazingly well because they have the, gr the ground is firm and their foot is just searching for stability. And so when you have any cushioning under it, the foot is, is having to work harder. So you're deloading the, per the perineals from doing this like micro movement of stress and just giving an opportunity to actually pull on the big toe and work the way it's meant to. So this is just a nuance. There's nothing written up. There's no evidence about this. I'm just finding that it works really well when we just get someone being stable. Heaps of balance work, balance work on stable surfaces. Like when are we walking around on a BOSU ball? Mm. When are we doing stuff on a BOSU ball? We're not, unless we're on a really big cushion shoe. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Do you find like if the option was there, and I'm, I'm guilty of it myself, if we were talking about sticking with the perineal example, yeah. into, you know, a shoe that's laterally more stable. And I think, of you know, a Brooks GTS and maybe a lateral wedge or something like that in comparison to a flatter, more cushioned, minimalist shoe. Do you see that they get better results with the minimalist shoe compared? Because logically it makes sense. A laterally stable shoe should unload that perineal tendon a little bit more. But you're saying that the flatter, more ground contact usually works a little bit better. Yeah, it does. There's no cushioning. When there's no cushioning, they seem to be able to um, mm. stabilise better. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question more, Kelly, like at the timeline, is it slower rehab? Like, like I said, often they're a bit later in stage anyway. So, um, but it, even in those early ones, like if they are acutely sore, I, we need to get that under control. And so we're in there with um, pain, what I call like a little pain management routine of um, like heat, gentle movement. Um, stuff that's telling their brain this is okay, this is okay, you know, like ankle rotations, ankle mobility work, um, mm -hmm. foot mobility, some basic, very basic things, and a, a big plan of isometrics as well, like heaps of that. Like they seem to work really well mm -hmm. um, with my clients for most things, like in terms of pain management. So we're hitting them with all that stuff first um, mm -hmm. to settle it down and then at the same time changing that environment that's caused the issue often, whether that be load or footwear or, work, you know, a whole lot of things. Yeah, we, we talked a lot about, and I know you and I talk a lot about this um, online and I love it because, I mean, up until three months ago, I didn't even really know what it, like what the Topo brand was. And now I probably send for three or four um, every day, every if not one every single day. And I wanted to tell a story about a, a patient that I had recently who'd had a bit of a flare-up of a fifth MPJ, um, had been re referred to us for an orthotic to, to wedge laterally and... Um, yeah, we looked at that and it wasn't really painful mechanically to test it or to hop or jump or bend the big toe. It seemed more just compressive pain. And but oh, it might be, it seems like it's probably your shoe. You've got a pretty wide, flexible foot. Why don't you go and, and grab a Tobo from one of the local shoe shops? Went and got that, saw him a week later. And I'm thinking, maybe still use your thought. If we talked about, we might use it. Come back in and pain was completely gone. And definitely not saying that that happens all the time. However, yeah. like yeah. I would have completely missed that, a complete blind spot of mine if I had not been probably following your stuff and learning a little bit more about this world. And I imagine all the things and patients that I've missed over the last couple of years where that's probably been the case. Yeah. Well, don't beat yourself up about that. Like that's um, uh, the way it is, isn't it? You're always like, I could have done better. Or if I'd known this or this, I don't know. But um, like the idea of this, and there's a question relating to this that you're probably coming to, mm. of, um, of this wide toe box, and that's the, the way the foot is... Um, 
anatomically designed to the point that we wear that conventional shoes are not that shape at all. So it's become normal, now normal to see a foot is not widest at the tips of the toes. Hmm. That's a baby, that's a baby's foot shape. And then because every human um, that wears shoes pretty much is in a shoe that compresses the toes, the normal foot shape is now a compressed um, toe shape. And so, um, it, for me, like in a minimalist shoe, we're looking at it being um, thin, thin soled, so that there, so you can feel the ground, um, and that's I see that as negotiable. Flats from heel to toe, that's negotiable depending on what we're trying to achieve with a client. Um, flexible, so the joint, so the foot can move. Again, um, negotiable depending on what we're trying to achieve with the client. The first one, um, which I skipped, is wide, and that's the non-negotiable for me. Like your your toes it's, have to be able to move. And I know a lot of people are like, what's so big about the toes moving? The muscles of the foot are attached to the toes. If you're not going to be able to move them, how are your, the muscles of the foot going to function properly? And and people like wriggle their toes in their squished. This is not toe movement. Toe, um, natural toe movement is the ability to display. And um, there's a physio in Finland who's obviously aligned part of our community, as you call yeah. it. Um, she's got this little video of her, um, and I've posted this, of her, like, two-year-old um, walking and looking down at the foot. And as the heel hits, at, before the heel hits the ground, the foot is um, just at, um, at rest, basically. And then the heel hits the ground and the foot just does this splay, just spreads out and accepts the ground and presses down onto the ground. And as it pushes off, it springs up again. Mm. It's, this is what's meant to happen as our foot moves every time. And if our toes are like this all the time, that's going to have an effect. Whether that be how that relates to pathology, I have no idea. But Audio I know things like that. So much stuff, yeah, so much stuff, and and so that's my my non-negotiable in terms of um, footwear. It's got to be wide, mm. which relates again, and so that relates again to another question that I, you'll probably come to is um, like where do I go with with the plant, plantar heel pain, and do are they all going to middle of the shoe? Like that would just be suicidal in terms of my career to be putting people with heel pain and it wouldn't make me feel that good either like <laughs> generally if i'm making people hurt more yeah um although maybe it'd be like shockwave therapy the pain would be so bad you forget about some other pain or something yeah. like <laughs> kelly's good she will shockwave her shins a couple of times and we can only do it once because she hates it she <laughs> Oh, that's right. Well, same. My son got some warts on his knees when he was about four, and I used liquid nitrogen on them. I would yeah. never freeze another child because anyone <laughs> ever again. Because like when when I'm seeing my own son in that much pain, I'm like I can't do this to anyone else anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like I would then definitely use some cushioning in a shoe, maybe a li even a little bit of a heel lift to take some load off. Yeah. But definitely we want to be able to splay those toes so that we can get some good blood flow, good movement in the area. You know. Yeah. And I, I think, and we'll, again, we talk about a lot online now I think about it because I feel like I'm starting every question with that. I, I tend to think, and I'm just going to talk from my own experience, um, that, you know, with footwear, I think a lot of people, just from a lack of knowledge of specific shoes and what to recommend, probably don't know a lot about which shoes to recommend in the minimalist category. Um, and I was just mentioning before, like Topo and Ultra, but if you were to ask me, a work boot i only know one wide load found them a couple of months ago and in the ladies shoe i couldn't actually tell you any category at all so what do you think general categories where can people go websites and then yeah. how do you kind of educate them about the shoe itself um so there are 140 barefoot shoe brands at the moment so this is a massive um industry yeah. and um I mean, I don't know how many normal shoe brands there are, but 140 barefoot shoe brands, and they're popping up 
all over the place. So because there's such a, a, a demand for it. So um, the, there's uh, in social media, there are great resources. The best is um, Anya's Reviews. This is a woman in America who has listed every, like she's, she's um, as, far, as far as feet go, a lay person, but through her own experience and then is obviously entrepreneurial enough to set up a business. But it's become quite knowledgeable. I would suggest more knowledgeable than a lot of podiatrists um, when it comes to natural food function. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you can go to her website, Anya's Reviews, and see your foot shape. Um, like she's listed the six or seven different foot shapes, whether it be like a long first toe, all the different foot yeah. shapes. And then go from there and it goes through each, like it, um, whether you've got a, high, a mo more mobile foot, how to test for it, a more stiffer foot, and these are the shoes that will suit you. And this this is like the shoe for you, you know, because yeah. um, it's not one size fits all. It's not like, okay, everyone should be in Vivo barefoot. Um, they're so popular because they've got a huge um, branding and yeah. huge um, spread across the world, but they tend to be the most narrow and shallow of all the barefoot <laughs> shoes. Yeah. And so they suit some feet but not all feet. And I, I could say with my clients, um, I would say 90% of my clients that come to me for for me to talk to them about um, a musculoskeletal issue, they have have wide feet. <laughs> they have wide compared to normal feet. So I'm seeing a, a part of the population that is more affected by conventional shoes. Mm. If I was seeing 90% of people with really narrow feet, they're going to be far less affected by conventional shoes, obviously, because narrow a narrow foot fits in a conventional shoe more easily. Um, but, yeah, I'm definitely... Um, Preaching to that um, group of people that are struggling to ever fit their um, yeah. their shoes on, and you're like, are you pulling out the sock liner and just showing them? Because sometimes it can, it can definitely be hard. We, we joke in the clinic, like where fashion meets function, you got to meet in the middle because everyone not wants, what doesn't want to wear what you recommend. Do you just pull out the sock liner and hold it to their foot and say, you know, this is you can see the issue quite clearly. Yeah, is probably why I think you need to go in this shoe. Um, I did that yesterday with that lady I was talking to you about. Um, I don't often do that. Um. I'll show them how the big toe is meant to work as a hinge and then I'll say, look, your toe's in this angle and if, if you're in this shoe and this is where the hinge is meant to be, look look at the angle that hinge is on when you're functioning, you know. like um, So I show, I show them that a lot. Um, yeah, like I said, I see a lot of people that already know this stuff or um, are understanding and they want to get into this stuff and so they've got a foot problem and want to go this way rather than traditional way. But if, for podiatrists out there listening that aren't seeing that population it's a, um, and thinking that a wide shoe is going to be better, just think about how that big toe is meant to act and how important it is. And then is that actually happening in the shoes the person is wearing? Like it triggers, using that big toe triggers um, a positive effect all the way up into the pelvic floor when we push off. And so if we're not using that big toe properly, we are missing out on a whole chain reaction of events um, in, in the normal human gait that are... Um, like I almost think I should, it should be a movement all about the big toe really, right? <laughs> like it's about having that big toe working. We gave yeah. up the ability to use our um, big toe in, as an opposing digit to be able to stand up straight. And um, then we put shoes on it that pretty much render it um, not working. How many people are actually wearing out where their big on their shoe where their big toe is? You look at nearly every um, runner's shoe, they're wearing out second, third, fourth met heads. They're just low gear towing off with every step yeah. with its multitude of effects. But the human body's amazingly adaptable. So, um, you know, because the argument is, well, not everyone's got foot pain and most people are wearing these um, conventional shoes. We adapt. Our bodies are amazingly adaptable. Mm. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're functioning as well as they could.
Um, and so like moving on from shoes a little bit, like yeah. how, how else are you managing your patients? Is it involving some sort of like intrinsic strengthening or, or some sort of strengthening or yeah. yeah. What else would you do? Um, so I'm assessing them first to see um, where the red flags are that I, that I might call it and and my um my language about this is is very important possibly almost one of the most important parts of how um i consult is speaking to someone very positively about their feet because a lot of people have very negative connotations and ideas about their feet that have been set up from a very young age whether it was grandma saying you had flat feet or the podiatrist saying that you need orthotics for the rest of your life or you've got this foot type which is a has negative connotations so straight away I'm assessing someone and explaining what I'm seeing while I'm assessing, explaining how I assess so that they're part of the process and they're feeling what I'm saying. You know, they're, um, they're able to experience what I'm saying. And, and that might be like, look, you, you're one of the best shock absorbers I've ever seen, you know, like your foot is shock absorbing beautifully. In the past, we'd be like, wow, look at that foot. It's rolling in so much. We've got to stop that, you know. Yeah, how are you still alive? Look at that foot. <laughs> And then, but hey, look, when you get to that point where your big toe hits the ground, we want to see you pushing off more efficiently. And that mm -hmm. might be something we, we, we should we can work on that. We can be stronger in that. And this is how we're going to do that. Um, let's look how mobile your ankles are. Like, why is it, why are you so efficient at shock absorbing and why are you um, less efficient at pushing off, for example? I'm just using late. This is the lay terms that I use. Um, okay, is it a mobility issue? Let's work on some mobility. Is it a strength issue? Let's work on that. Um, and then I tend to not try not to open.